I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2, just a page or two at the very beginning of your Bible. And we want everybody to be able to look at what we'll be considering today. So these guys have some Bibles. If you need one, get their attention, and they'll get a Bible to you so you can follow along. Genesis 2. Most of us here today believe that God has spoken in the pages of the book that you have in your hands, the Bible. We believe it's God's word to us, his guidebook for our lives. So the name of our church is Community Bible Church. And our motto is that we are the family of God built on the word of God to the glory of God. We believe the Bible then in this place. And so we seek to preach it and to teach it. Most of you read it and you attend to learn more about it and to seek to live it out. But with all of that commitment to the Bible, I'm convinced that we often miss its message because we use it incorrectly. Many people use the Bible and think of it as a kind of encyclopedia. You have a particular problem, you look it up in the Bible to see what the the Bible says. So if you have a, a struggle that's going on in your life with a particular sin, look up what the Bible has to say uh, about that. Or if you're going through a particular type of suffering, see what the Bible has to say about that. Now, we want to look at the Bible for our sin struggles and our suffering. But if we're not careful, we can end up doing what's called proof texting. We can isolate passages of the Bible from the passages that surround it and thereby take it out of context. Or some of us take a kind of poor Richard's Almanac approach to the Bible. That the Bible is just this series of kind of short, pithy, wise sayings. A stitch in time saves nine. Cleanliness is next to godliness. And I've had multiple people over the years tell me that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, they think it's found in the Bible. And all of that's actually found in poor Richard's Almanac. So we use the Bible, if we're not careful, in incorrect ways. Friends, we've got to remember that the Bible is giving us a story. A story with a beginning and with an end. And if you were reading a novel, a story, you want to read it all the way through. Now, I know we've all been guilty of saying, okay, the suspense is killing me, I'm going to the end. And we've all read the end of the Bible's story, and we know that the end of the story is that God wins. God wins and his, his people ultimately win. But if you simply do the proof texting here and there with the sin and the suffering that you find yourself engaged in, or if you just go to the end and say God wins, you miss something very important, and that's this. You and I are in between. There's the beginning and there's the end, and the Bible talks to and about us in between. And to get from the Bible what's in store for you and for me and how we fit into the story, you have to begin at the beginning. And so the title of today's message, this final message in the opening chapters of Genesis, a summary really of what we've looked at in 30 messages today, the 31st. The title of it at the top of the outline that's in your program. If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to pull that out of your program. It's inserted along with the other 
items we have there. And you see at the top, it says your life begins here. And your life begins here in these chapters that we've been talking about. In the opening chapters of the Bible. And so today is this final summary message in our series, Our Problems and God's Promises, from those opening chapters. Today we want to summarize what those chapters teach us about our lives and how they fit into God's story. Let's ask God to help us then, as we do. Father, we thank you for the blessing of worshiping you already on this Lord's Day. We thank you for the gathering of your people for the desire and the ability to sing praise to you, to give back to you. Now, Lord, we ask you to help us as we focus our attention on your communication to us in your word. Grant us, Lord, minds that are alert and attentive, and grant us hearts that are open to what you tell us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, in that outline that most of you have in front of you at this point, we say there that the opening chapters of the Bible give us three things, the first of which is an understanding of God's work. The opening chapters of the Bible give us an understanding of God's work. And what I'm going to do with the A through E that are below that is I'm just going to point out some subjects that the Bible teaches about God's work in his world that without reference to these opening chapters of the Bible would be incomprehensible to us. There are a number of things that we read about in the Bible later that if you don't have these opening chapters, wouldn't make any sense. One of those is the issue of marriage. We understand, by virtue of these opening chapters, marriage. And that's why I've asked you to start in chapter 2. We're going to look at a few passages in these opening chapters, but we're going to start at chapter 2 and verse 24. And in chapter 2, you have, if you were with us many months ago when we looked at the six days of creation, in Genesis chapter 2, you have an elaboration on the sixth day of creation that's mentioned in chapter 1, the crowning achievement of all of God's creative activity when he created humanity. And you have an elaboration upon the creation of humanity in chapter 2, on day 6, and then what follows and part of what follows is God giving, giving the first woman to the first man, Eve to Adam. And after God has given Eve to Adam and presented him as a, a gift and a companion to Adam to help him in the mandate that God has issued to Adam, verse 24, we're told that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And then thereafter, after the institution of marriage in these opening chapters of the Bible, at the outset of human history, later in the Bible, you have much that's said about marriage and things like divorce. And so, for example, in the time of the law, as you go to the fifth book of your Bible, you don't need to turn there now, but in the fifth book of your Bible, Deuteronomy, the the recipients of God's law had carried out the gift of marriage in a way that resulted often, sometimes, in divorce. And as a result of divorce happening, something that we're going to see in a moment is not God's intention, then God regulated this practice of of divorce, particularly to protect the most vulnerable partner in that divorce, in in that age, the woman. So in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, 
You have legislation. You have laws given to God's people about this issue of divorce. And by the time you come to to Jesus, 1,500 years after that law is given, and God the Son is walking the earth, you have religious leaders who were to be experts in the law, but they were questioning Jesus about marriage and divorce. And they come to Jesus in Matthew 19. And they say, they ask this, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So these guys want to know, on what grounds can we get rid of our wives? And they're basing that on a wrong interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And Jesus answers them this way. Jesus replied, at the beginning... The Creator made them male and female. Now, notice what Jesus is doing. He's going back to the opening chapters of Genesis. If you want to know what marriage is about, if you want to know why divorce breaks something, mars something that God has instituted as good, you've got to go to the beginning. You don't go to Deuteronomy 24. You go to the very beginning and God's purpose for marriage. At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And then Jesus Quotes Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And as a result of that truth from the second chapter of the Word of God, from going back to the beginning, Jesus then summarizes God's view of marriage and divorce. What God has joined together, let no one separate. So if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying about marriage, we've got to have an understanding of the very beginning. God gave marriage to be a permanent bond between a man and a woman. One man, one woman for one lifetime. Now, sin being what it is, Jesus instituted or God instituted that in Genesis 2 before the entrance of sin into his world. Sin messes up everything and sin messes up marriage. And so people break the covenant of marriage by committing adultery. And Jesus would say that marital unfaithfulness can be a grounds for a divorce. So there are two grounds given in divorce, abandonment of the marriage or the committing of adultery that could result in that. But again, it's not God's design. And the concern of the questioners to Jesus in Matthew 19 is how and why to terminate a marriage. But Jesus' answer emphasizes why a marriage should be initiated, why it should be initiated, and why it should be perpetuated. So what God has joined together, let no one break apart. And not only do we get an understanding of the institution of marriage and the permanency of marriage from the very beginning of the Bible, but we also get an understanding of the roles in marriage that wives and husbands are to play. That goes all the way back to Genesis 2. And later in your Bible, you're going to have discussion of that stuff, but if you don't know that it goes back to the opening chapters, you won't have the basis upon which these teachings are formed. So, for example, in 1 Timothy, in your New Testament, chapter 2, in talking about the role of women, particularly in the, in the church, Paul says men are to lead in the church. Paul, who wrote that, men are to take leadership in the church. And he says, here's one of the reasons. Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's what he says. So he's going all the way back to creation, and he's saying God's intent was to have the man, give the man this mandate, and then he created the woman to be a helper for him to carry that out. 
And that goes all the way back to the beginning. Now, lest you think, oh no, I have wandered into a church where they are all a bunch of male chauvinists and women are demeaned and under the feet of of men, let me, I hope, set your mind at ease. God has different roles for us to play. God has assigned different roles for us to play. We men aren't going to ever be able to have babies. God's assigned that role to to women. And that's a good thing because men wouldn't be able to take it. Right, ladies? He's assigned different roles to us, but we are equal, equal before God in who we are as human beings made in his image and who we are as believers who have Christ's standing before the Father. And that's why in your New Testament, the Bible will say things like this. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But again, that teaching being one goes all the way back to the beginning as well. That the man and the woman were both equally created as we're going to see in the image of God. So these opening chapters of the Bible give us an understanding of God's work. It helps us understand things like marriage. I say as well, we understand sacrifice, sacrifice from these opening chapters. Now, when I say sacrifice, I'm not talking about me giving up something for you, you giving up something for me. That's a a current meaning of sacrifice. But I mean sacrifice as in sacrificial lamb. Sacrifice before God in order to appease the righteous anger of God because of our sin. And we learn that in the opening chapters of the Bible. If you just flip over to chapter 3. And after the first man and the first woman have sinned, disobeyed God's command, God has pronounced consequences upon them and thus upon us, the human race. But then the Bible tells us this in verse 21. God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, if you read earlier in chapter 3, you'll see that they had already clothed themselves. In fact, if you go back to chapter, excuse me, verse 7 of chapter 3, it says that they sewed together fig leaves for themselves and they covered themselves. Now, Adam hides himself from God. God says, where are you, Adam? Adam says, well, I was naked and I hid myself. But the truth is he's already made clothes. He's hiding because he's guilty, not because he's physically naked. And God did not give them this clothing in verse 21 because they didn't have any covering. They already did. God gave them a different kind of covering. And that different kind of covering in verse 21 is a covering that is made of skins from an animal. God has slain an animal. The wages of sin is what? Is death. And God, in this third chapter of the Bible, slays an animal due to sin and he covers the man and the woman. And as you go forward in your Bible now, you go through the law and the sacrificial system then that's given there. And God's saying that in order to atone for your sin, there's going to have to be a sacrifice of an animal. There's going to be a day of atonement once a year. And that all points forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the sacrifice on the cross for our sin. When you come to Hebrews chapter 9, the Bible says this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 
You see, friends, without these opening chapters of the Bible, you go and read in the middle, you start reading that stuff. What's the sacrifice thing all about? Why are animals being killed? Why is God the Son, the perfect Lamb of God, hanging on a cross? It all goes back to these opening chapters. So we understand marriage and we understand sacrifice. And thirdly, we understand spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Chapter 3 again, after the man and the woman have sinned, God pronounces consequences for that sin. He speaks to the serpents. And in verse 15 of chapter 3, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, this is predicting that there is going to come one who will be the solution to the problem of sin. And that one is going to come through the human race, through the seed of the woman. And now this side of the completion of the New Testament and the work of Christ, we know that to be none other than God the Son, the Lord Jesus. But that took millennia for that for that to happen. And this is the beginning of the spiritual warfare that will occur between the seed of the serpent and the godly seed that would ultimately produce, produce Christ and his people, the seed that come through him. And in the very next chapter, that enmity... That warfare begins in chapter 4 with the story of Cain and Abel. You're all familiar with that. Cain is angry because God has received the sacrifice, the worship of Abel, and he's rejected the worship of Cain, and Cain murders his, his brother. And as you go forward in the New Testament, you find Jesus at odds, at war, at enmity, with the people that he has come to save, the people that he has come to confront with God's truth and to show God's love by dying for sin. And many of these people that he's often confronted by are the very religious leaders who are to be experts in the Bible, and especially the beginning of the Bible. And Jesus says in one of these confrontations, in Matthew chapter 23, he says, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers... And some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Now, what does that go back to? Where does the spiritual warfare go back to? Where does this enmity go back to? It goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and verse 15. And Jesus tells them, if you were to read Matthew 23, Jesus tells them, you're of your father, the devil. You act just like your father. He says that in John chapter 8 and verse 44 as well. And then he says to them this, Upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the righteous, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Here's Jesus referencing that first murder. Because that was the beginning of the spiritual warfare that is now manifesting itself in the ministry of Jesus and those who oppose him. And Jesus says, if they persecuted me, do you remember? They will persecute you. Now, just as an aside, that verse that's up on the screen, where you have Abel and you have Zechariah, why does Jesus mention them? Well, it's obvious why he mentions Abel. That's the first murder recorded in the Bible, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. But why Zechariah? And by the way, this is not the prophet Zechariah 
after whom we have a, a book of the Old Testament named. But this is someone who was murdered, and the murder of this Zechariah was recorded in the book of Second Chronicles in your Old Testament, Second Chronicles. So why is this obscure Zechariah and his murder mentioned? Well, here's why. Because in the Jewish arrangement of the Old Testament, which has the same number of books as ours, we have 39 books, they have the same 39 books, but they're arranged differently. It begins with the same book, Genesis, but it doesn't end with Malachi, as does ours. It ends with Second Chronicles. And so here is Jesus saying, in effect, from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end, you're responsible for the blood of all of the prophets that have gone before. Because of this enmity, this warfare that begins in the opening chapters of Genesis, continues throughout the Bible, will continue until Jesus returns, You have in the book of 1 John, toward the end of your New Testament, the Apostle John says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And just before that, John has said to Christians, Love one another. Don't be like Cain. So we understand marriage and sacrifice, spiritual warfare. Fourthly, we understand Israel. Israel. the nation Israel. But that comes out of these opening chapters. God gave a mandate to humanity through the first man, Adam. But the man and the woman disobeyed, and they populated the earth with others who failed to carry out that mandate. That mandate was to rule the earth on God's behalf to bring glory to him, fill the earth and subdue it for God, be his image bearers, reflecting him back to him. And so God started over with the flood. And the second Adam, Noah, and his wife, and their three sons and daughters-in-law, again populated the earth with people who pursued their own way rather than God's. And so in chapter 11, at Babel, God scattered them and nations and cultures and races began. And God then focused on one man through whom would come the nation Israel, the man that we saw last week, Abram. And God focuses attention now on on Abram. And he makes promises to Abram. He says, I'm going to make you a, a great nation. I'm going to give you a people that whose number will be uncountable. And I'm going to give you a, a seed. But I'm also going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a place. And in fact, in Genesis 15, here's what God repeats to to Abram from chapter 12 that we saw last week. In chapter 15, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So God in chapter 11, end of chapter 11, he calls Abram out of paganism in Chaldea. In chapter 12 that we saw last week, he tells them these promises, these unconditional promises. And he says, I'm going to give you this land to take possession of it. So did Abram ever get that land? Nope. The Bible tells us he wandered around for the remainder of his life, and he was left with only a cave to bury his family. In fact, the book of Hebrews in your New Testament says this, after listing Abram, especially among others who believed God, trusted God, had faith in God, 
It ends by saying they, these were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. Now I want you to know something, friends. That tells us why Israel as a nation was formed. And Israel as a nation was formed in order to receive these promises from God. And you need to hear this. When God makes a promise, it's going to happen. And Abram never received that land. But he will receive that land in the future. Abram is going to be resurrected. As all of the Old Testament saints are, and they are going to inherit the land in something that in Revelation 20 is called the kingdom of Christ, the the millennium. And in between, here's what the Bible says about Israel. Romans chapter 11, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And here's why. It's, it's It's a hardening in part until... That is, there's going to come a time where Israel, in the words of the prophet Zechariah, are going to look on him whom they pierced, and they will turn to their Messiah. But that time is yet future. And the reason then it's in part is because it still will happen, uh, and, and until is because it still will happen. And here's why. For God's gifts and his call to Israel are irrevocable. What God has said will happen. And so we understand Israel, why it was formed in rejecting the Messiah until the full number of Gentiles has come in. God has now turned primarily to the Gentiles in something called the church, which is the last thing. We understand the church. We understand Israel. We understand the church. That's us. That's this time period. As God deals with the church, as it were, as sort of a parenthesis in his program until he returns his attention to Israel at the end. God created the church to go to the nations since Israel did not. Israel was to be created as a nation among the nations, a light to the entire world. But they failed in that. And when Jesus gave his mandate to the church, you remember what it was, the Great Commission. Go And make disciples of all nations. And God is now gathering out a people for himself. To be his very own from every tribe and tongue and nation. And at the end, the Apostle John is given a glimpse of what it's going to be like in heavenly worship. As God has accomplished his purposes through Israel and through the church and through us. And in Revelation 7, it says... Before me was a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And that in Revelation 7, in the last book of your Bible, all starts at the beginning. As God pursues his purpose and accomplishes his purpose. The opening chapters of the Bible give us an understanding of God's work. But I say secondly in your outline. They give us an understanding of the purpose of God's world. They give us an understanding of God's word, of God's work, and they also give us the purpose of God's world. So why did God create? Why did God create? He was not lonely. 
Sometimes we get that idea. I told you that many months ago when we covered the first chapter of the Bible. Why did God create? It certainly was not that he was lonely. In fact, if you'll turn back to chapter 1, we have an allusion there to the fact that at the creation of humanity, we have an allusion there to the fact that God is, is not lonely. He speaks in plural pronouns. Verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God has always had fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's never been lonely. And the Bible tells us very explicitly that God does nothing that he does because of any lack within himself. He is complete in himself. So in Acts chapter 17, God does not live in temples built by human hands as if he needed anything. God needs no thing and no one outside of himself. So then why did he create? He created us to, in effect, extend his glory, his character, who he is in his universe. God created us to, in effect, extend his character, his glory in his world. Now, I remind you that our purpose is the glory of God, I say in your outline. Our purpose is the glory of God. I don't need to spend much time on this. I don't think any of you would dispute that. If you just know a little bit about the Bible, it's very explicit on this. That God's purpose at all times and in all places and in all things that he does and allows is for his own glory. And so you have passages like Romans chapter 11. From him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And in speaking of God's story in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then giving the conclusion of this panoramic view of going before creation and God's choice to call some people out of the world and to himself. And then ultimately to establish the church. Those three chapters end this way in verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so God is very explicit that our purpose is to glorify him. Now, we sometimes say so and so missed his calling. He should have been a, you know, fill in the blank. He's really good at this. He should have been that. Well, the Bible teaches that all humanity, friends, has missed its calling to bring glory to God. We were made to bring glory to God, but instead, the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I want to take a few moments here to make sure that you understand that this end for which God does all things, the purpose that he has made the world for is to bring glory to himself, that that has practical, very practical import significance for you and me. And I want to show you that by quoting the truly great theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who said, God, in seeking his own glory, seeks the good of his creatures because the extension of his glory implies the happiness of his creatures. And in sharing his fullness for them, he does it for himself. Because their good, which he seeks, is so much in union and communion with himself. 
God is their good. Their excellency and happiness is nothing but the extension and expression of God's glory. God, in seeking their glory and happiness, seeks himself. And in seeking himself, that is extending himself in others, he seeks their glory and happiness. Thus, it's easy to conceive how God should seek the good of the creature and God's own happiness from a supreme regard for himself. As God's happiness arises from the creature's Exercising a supreme regard to God in beholding God's glory, esteeming and loving it and rejoicing in it. God's focus on the creature's good and focus on himself is not a divided focus. But both are united in one as the happiness of the creature aimed at is happiness in union with God. One author has teased out the implications of that, 15 of them. Listen, please, as I read them. If that's all true, and it is, then it means that God's passion for his own glory and his passion for our joy are not at odds. Therefore, God is as committed to my eternal and ever-increasing joy in him as he is to his own glory. God is as committed to my joy as he is to his own glory. It means the love of God for sinners is not his making much of them, but his graciously freeing and empowering them to enjoy making much of him. All true virtue, it means, among human beings must aim at bringing people to rejoice in the glory of God. It follows, fifthly, that sin is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for broken cisterns of created things. It means that heaven is going to be a never-ending, ever-increasing discovery of more and more of God's glory with greater and ever greater joy in Him. It means that hell will be a never-ending, unspeakably real, conscious, horrible, eternal place. The experience in which God vindicates the worth of his glory in his holy wrath on those who would not delight in what's infinitely glorious. And it means some just practical things on stuff we do. Why do we tell people about Jesus? (laughs) It's so that those mouths go from mouths that curse him to mouths that praise him, bring glory to him. Evangelism means depicting the beauty of Christ and His saving work with a heartfelt urgency of love that labors to help people find their satisfaction in Him. Christian preaching, as part of the corporate worship of Christ's church, is an expository exaltation over the glories of God in His Word, designed to lure God's people from the fleeting pleasures of sin into the sacrificial path of obedient satisfaction in Him. It means the essence of authentic corporate worship is the collective experience of heartfelt satisfaction in the glory of God. Or, it should be a trembling that we do not have it and a great longing for it. It means for world missions, a declaration of the glories of God among all the unreached peoples with a view to gathering worshipers who magnify God through the gladness of radically obedient lives. This has implications for prayer, 
because prayer is calling on God for help. So it's plain that he is gloriously resourceful and we're humbly and happily in need of grace. The task of Christian education is to study reality as a manifestation of God's glory, to speak about it with accuracy and to savor the beauty of God that we find in it. Just two more. It means the way to magnify God in death is by meeting death as gain. And then lastly, as C.S. Lewis said, it is a Christian duty, you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. But the only way to be joyful, the only way to be happy, is in the pursuit of the purpose for which you were made, the glory of God. Let me ask you, friend, how are you? How are you really? How satisfied are you? If your answer is, I'm good, everything's great. And you can say that, not being sold out to God, then hear this, your purpose is too small, you settle for too little. If your answer is no, I'm not satisfied, I'm not joyful, I'm not happy, but I'm obeying God even though I'm not, then your vision of God is too small. Conversely, if your answer is no, I'm a miserable person because I've been disobeying God and I know it. That's because your view of yourself is too big. And you know why? Because you thought you could find your own way to fulfillment. And along the way, you forgot that you're a creature, you're not the creator, and you set about creating your own criteria for fulfillment. Only in fulfilling the purpose for which you were created to glorify God can you find that fulfillment. And that's why Augustine was right when he said, Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The opening chapters of the Bible give us an understanding of God's world. Our purpose is the glory of God. And I say in your outline, our purpose is achieved by imitating God. Our purpose is achieved by imitating God. Now, this imitating of God goes back to the unique way in which he made humanity recorded back in chapter 1 and verse 27. Chapter 1 and verse 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So as quickly as I can, let me go through this and remind you of this. God made us in his image to reflect him back to him. God made us to be mirrors that reflect his character, his glory, who he is back to him. God made us to extend his glory so that when he looks at humanity, he sees himself. In every thought and word and deed, he's to see himself. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. But sin has broken the mirror. Sin has distorted the image. Now when God looks at us, he doesn't see himself completely. Partly. We're still in the image of God, we will see, but not completely. Sin has distorted that. And salvation, Christ coming, is God's mission to repair the broken mirrors that we have become. So that one day, and increasingly every day, we perfectly reflect the image of God back to him. And so the Bible teaches that man is made in the image of God, still, even after sin. Sin occurred in Genesis 3 and Genesis 9. The Bible says this, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, 
has God made mankind. They're still in the image of God, distorted though that image is. In your New Testament, James chapter 3, the Bible says human beings have been made in God's likeness. So even after sin, we're in the image of God. Now get this. Christ is, Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the undistorted, perfect image of God. That we were designed to be. And so the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, Christ is the image of God. In Colossians 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. So here's what that means. If we're going to fulfill our purpose, it means we become like Jesus. Because Jesus is the image. And so the Bible says God predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And it says, for those who belong to him, we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. The opening chapters of the Bible give us an understanding of God's work, of his world. And then lastly, confidence in God's provision. Confidence in God's provision. These opening chapters of the Bible should give us confidence in a couple of things. One is confidence in God's word. His word. And here's what I mean. Here's why I say that. You have been confronted, whether in college, whether in high school, whether just talking at the water cooler, at work, reading the newspaper, watching television, you have been confronted in your lifetime, as have I, with claims that are contrary to what God says about the origin of the world and how the world came to be as it is. You've been told that there was a big bang and it happened by chance. God says, not a chance. And as we've gone through these opening chapters, I trust you have confidence in God's word over the word of man. Where did cultures come from? Where did nations come from? Where did the societies and races come from? Those are all in the opening chapters of the Bible. And I say to you, especially young people in this room, As you go off to college, I've got two girls in college now, yikes. As you go off to college and you hear the word of man, you remember at all times and at every place that God's word stands supreme. And you filter everything you hear through God's word. That's why Solomon could say in chapter 12 at the end of this book of Ecclesiastes, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. These opening chapters give us confidence in God's provision, confidence in his word. Lastly, confidence in our future. You see, friends, those opening chapters of the Bible are the beginning of the story. We know how the story ends. But you and I are in between. We are part of the story. And if we belong to Jesus, here's what God says about our part in the story. In Ephesians 1, we're told God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise 
of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. (laughs) Here's a summary of what that means. We will be related to God for as long as the Son is related to the Father. And we will receive all that God has promised to him. Can you believe that? Genesis begins the story of God's extension of his glory. Who he is extended into his world. God is teaching us about his glory, friends, now in your life, in chapters, in phases and circumstances of our lives as he moves toward the goal of our perfect reflection of him. You enjoy those phases and those circumstances, even the hard and the tragic ones, only as you fully participate in the story. So to use a different metaphor from a story, the train of your life is moving. And you're on board, okay? You're on board the train. Everybody here is on board the train. Everybody who comes in the world has got the train and it's moving. And that's because you're a creature. You had no choice about it. You come into this world, you're on the train. But whether you enjoy the ride depends on with what perspective you choose to travel. You can be a dispassionate traveler, head down, no interaction, sleeping your way through the trip. You can be a protesting traveler. I didn't ask to be on this train. I don't like the stops we've made along the way. And I hate whoever it is that planned this trip. Or you can be an engaged and glad participant because you trust the conductor rather than yourself. You see, friends, you're in the story. You're on the journey. But you've got to enter into the story. You must willingly ride the train. And when you do, when you know and love the story and the God of the story, your story, and when you love the trip because you love the conductor, then and only then will you experience joy in the journey. And God has created us for that. Here's your take-home truth. An understanding of Genesis is indispensable to an understanding of your life. Let's ask God to help us as we seek to live out the joy in pursuing the glory of God for which we were created. Father, thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for your mighty word that gives us all that we need in order to know who we are, who you are, and for what purpose you have placed us here. Oh, Lord, help us not to be so foolish as to pursue our own agenda. Help us to see that our creator, our conductor, the one who is writing the novel of this story, the author and the finisher of our faith knows best. And once we know that, once we're convinced of that, then help us to exult, help us to glory in all things because of him. And we pray this to his glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.